0: Good morning. Good morning. Well, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your mercy. We thank you for the truth that you revealed to us in scripture and in nature and in life of Jesus. We ask that you will enlighten our minds, draw us close to you, and help us to be effective agents for you at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson eight in the quarterly, the message of Hebrews in the last days. And the first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson says, By living a perfect life and then by dying in our place, Jesus mediated a new, better covenant between us and God. Through his death, Jesus canceled the penalty of death that our trespasses demanded and made possible the new covenant. What do you think about this sentence? Uh, Through his death, Jesus canceled the penalty of death that our trespasses demanded. Well, I want to applaud them for not saying... Jesus paid the death penalty that our trespasses demanded. Instead, they used the word canceled. this is a, a movement. This is a hopefully a move in the right direction yeah. <laughs> a subtle, subtle language change, but it 's implying a little something different. canceled instead of paid okay right right it 's a little different. but when you read stuff like this, you know what do we always ask what law lens? What law lens are you reading through? Human law, rules made up that require judicial oversight and punishment. Creator law, who laws build reality and the laws life operate upon, which law lens do you see it through? So when you think about penalty for sin, what law lens does the penalty come from? Where does the penalty originate? What does it mean in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That's a quote. That's not me. Well, what is the power that causes death for someone who puts a plastic bag over their head? There is a power that causes the death. Is it a judicial power? No. no. Is it an external governmental enforcement power? No. Now, what is the power?
1: The law, respiration.
0: the law of respiration, which is being violated. It is the law upon which life is built to operate that the person who puts the bag over their head is now breaking. That is the power. God cannot change his law to meet a sinner in sin. To change his law changes the very fabric of his creation, the protocols upon which he constructed reality to operate. He won't do it because his protocols are the perfect protocols for life, health, and wellness. Those are his laws. So death, the power, the power of sin is the law. The power that kills is the law that we are breaking. Because we're out of harmony with it. That's the basis of life. This is different than the imposed law view. In the imposed law view, it is not the law that punishes. If you go out here and you go 35 in a 30 zone, the law doesn't punish you in any way. Some external enforcing agent has to inflict the punishment upon you, but not the law. That is quite different. That's why the power of sin is from the law, not the power of sin is from God's judicial bench. Harmony with God's law is life and health. Violations automatically result in pain, suffering, and without remedy, without restoration, death. God has to act, use power to suspend what would naturally happen in order to provide remedy, lest all humans die after Adam's sin. Imagine this scenario. Someone jumps off the Empire State Building. What is the power that will cause them harm and end their life? Is it a state power? If, if there is a law in the state of New York that it's illegal to jump off the Empire State Building... <clears throat> oh, and it is! There is a law for that. There you go. <laughs> is the punishment that comes to the person who jumps off... Is the penalty that comes from the person who jumps enforced by the state... That is not the law. That's not the law that causes the pain, the suffering, and the death. The law that causes the pain, suffering, and the death? There's actually several. Laws of gravity, law of gravity, laws of physics, and the laws of health. They're being broken by this act, by this choice. These are design laws. This is, the, this is an analogy for the sin problem. So, so in this analogy, the human race, Adam and Eve, are on the top of the Empire State Building analogy. Satan comes flying by in the form of a flying serpent, says did God say in the day you jump you will surely die oh no you won't if you jump you'll be able to fly like me look I've got wings I can fly and you'll be able to fly even higher you'll soar into heaven and be like God and so they jump and for a few seconds they're exhilarated they're thrilled until they discover they're going only one way and then they're overcome with fear fear overcome with fear and at that moment, God reaches in his hand, literally, he intervenes and suspends the ultimate consequences. Romans 3, verse 25. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He suspends it, he creates an artificial bubble of reality that earth operates in, severed or disconnected or shielded from his life-giving glory. Their robes of light go away. They find themselves naked. And a new state, a new state that didn't exist prior to this grace, this emergency measure, the suspension of the ultimate consequence, the sleep death, the first death. This is an, this is an intervention to allow people to go into suspended animation where their thoughts freeze, their suffering stops, they're put on pause. So the plan of salvation can be... But first, death is not the punishment for sin. And and while the human race in Adam and Eve is is, is in the hand of God being suspended, God says... If you'll let me, I'll put you back in. I'll stick you through a window. I'll put you back in harmony with the law. I'll intervene in your behalf if you'll let me. And then what happens to those in in the palm of God's hand, whose He is intervening and suspending the ultimate consequence of sin, while acts of grace are working to uh, to get them to allow Him to heal and restore them? If they say, in the metaphor, "Look, you're always interfering with my fun." you're always trying to stop what I want to do. You're taking my freedom from me. I don't want you in my life, Lord. I don't want to let you reset me back. I want to do it my way. And they insist, hardening the heart, and won't let God heal them. And God removes his hand, and they continue their fall. What's the cause of their death? Who kills them? Okay. And that's the wrath of God. The wrath of God letting them go. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godless of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the uh, the knowledge of God for the images made with their own hands. Therefore, what did God do? Therefore, God gave them up. He let them go. Over and over again, verse 24, 26, 28, multiple places in scripture. When you insist and you harden your heart, God removes his hand... Recognizes your individuality, your power, of freedom to choose, and, and allows you to reap what you have sown. So the Bible teaches, Galatians 6, 8, those who sow to the carnal nature,
1: from that nature,
0: from that nature, reap destruction, not from God. This is reality. This is design law. This is what's happening. So did, we're talking about penalties now. So did Jesus come to cancel the penalty of sin? No. No. To reveal it. Yeah, to reveal it and what's the scripture say? He came to take away the cause of the penalty of sin. That's what he came to do in John the Baptist in John 1, 29, Quote, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the penalty of sin. Wait, that doesn't quite ring right, does it? What does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the... Sin of the world, not the penalty for sin. This penalty idea is part of the infection of Rome. It's part of Romanism, imperial law. Sin must be punished. It's part of what the Adventist church was called to to finish the Reformation about, to call people back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth to see. And instead, the Adventist church in 1888 rejected that message and embraced the imposed law message And what's the imposed law message? Let me show you the subtle difference. Satan doesn't go far off. He makes it very close, so it's hard to tell the difference. The 1880 message was righteousness by faith. By faith, we become righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That was rejected. Instead, what was accepted was the penal legal fraud, which says... If you accept the payment of Jesus on your behalf, it is put applied to your record book in heaven, and when God looks at you, He declares you to be righteous, even though you're not. We have legal declaration in a courtroom of heaven of righteousness while you remain unrighteous. That's what was accepted by the church. That's what's taught in almost every one of our theological seminaries and our schools. And this is why we're still wandering in the wilderness. It is not the gospel. And it misrepresents the character of God because when you drill down into that, well, what was necessary? And it's going to come up in the lesson this week and next week if you're reading your lessons. It's it's horrible stuff that comes up. What comes up is God, in order to be just, must kill. I'll just read you a sentence out of next week's lesson. Next week's lesson on Sunday's lesson says, "If God should simply look over the way, look the other way, or refuse to punish the transgressor, his commandments would never be enforceable." God, had, God's the punisher. This is the view when you hold the wrong law model. Desire of to 762. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. And if, if man should transgress, God could not forgive. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. This is Satan's position from the very beginning. And the Adventist church was called to call people out of this Roman view of seeing the world. When I say Roman, I'm talking Imperial Rome. Imperial Rome has a Caesar who makes up rules, and if you don't abide by Imperial Rome's rules, then the Imperial Roman legions will come and kill you. And this is how the vast Christian world, Roman, Catholic, or Protestant, teaches God runs his universe. He makes up laws. And if you don't obey them, he's required by holiness, justice, uh, by the law itself, some some mechanism he's required to use power to kill. When you come back to worship creator, you understand how fraudulent all that is. Think about the meaning. Think about the implication of that, if that were true. Well, if God could just simply restrain himself and not use power to hurt his creatures, we could live forever in sin because sin doesn't actually harm us. God harms us for us. This is what the ultimate conclusion is. Sin is fine. It doesn't kill. We could live eternally. Satan was right. You, you, you won't die if you eat the fruit. No, I'm not saying God can't kill you for it. Yeah, He might kill you, but but eating the fruit itself, you won't die. And that's what Christianity teaches. God kills you for it, but you wouldn't die from it.
1: But in the in the Bible, there's a lot of punishment language, and I think that's where. They get, they see the punishment language and apply it to the way we understand punishment.
0: Yep, because what are we dealing with throughout the whole Bible after Eden? We're, we're dealing with fallen human beings who are in a sin condition. Okay. Uh, this is what you could call it. We're in profane spaces. We're in sinful spaces. We're not living in righteous, holy, perfect, sinless spaces like in heaven. And, and when we're in sinful places then interventions are necessary that are not necessary in heaven. And the law that God used, so God used a lot of law in the Old Testament for the same reason a parent sets rules for their child. The parent doesn't set rules for the child to control the child, to set up arbitrary systems of inflicted punishment. They're setting rules for immaturity to help them learn reality. So brush your teeth before you go to bed. And if you don't, well, if you're small, you might get a consequence inflicted by the parent. But when you become adults, how many of you, well, don't raise your hands, but how many of you brush your teeth, and, and if your spouse says, what are you doing, brush your teeth, and you go, why are you doing that? Well, my mom has a rule. <laughs> how silly is that? <laughs> how silly? And this is how many Christians are. Why do you go to church and say, well, God has a rule. He's got a law. You don't break them. You get in trouble. It's like, when are you people going to grow up? This is what we talked about last week. The immature, they're focused on the rules. But they're on milk. They're not on meat. They have no clue about the teaching of righteousness. Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5. So Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, the condition that causes death, not the penalty. The idea of paying penalties, canceling penalties, removing penalties, all based on the wrong understanding of law. Death is the unavoidable result of unremedied sin of the condition of being out of harmony with God and his law of life. No penalty has to be paid or canceled. What had to happen was the condition that causes death had to be resolved, remedied, cured, fixed, removed. Jesus takes away the sin or sinfulness of the world by becoming sin, though he knew no sin, and is destroying the sin condition in the humanity he took at the cross and restoring God's perfect law of life in the humanity that he um, lived in thus he became the second Adam, the new head of humanity not the second Tim Jennings the second Adam he came to redeem what Adam did to the race acts of sin I'm going to say this I'm going to tell you that what I'm about to say will be heard as heresy to the penal legal people because they don't comprehend seeing the see. hearing the hear. they don't understand. Acts of sin do not require God to punish. Acts of sin are symptoms of a sin condition that require God to heal. And if and, and just step back and think in your own life, when did any you or any human you know choose to become a sinner? That's right, born that way. Psalms 51, five. born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We were born with a condition we did not choose. And that condition without remedy has symptoms. We call the symptoms sin, or sins. Can you it... the same thing? Pardon? The acts of sin do not require God to punish. Can you repeat the same thing? Again? Yet the acts of sin do not require God to punish. That's, what, that's, that's just reality. They require God to heal the condition that causes the acts. Sin versus sins. That's right. Sin the condition versus sins the symptomology. And you've heard this before. HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. But they have a condition which, if unremedied, pardon yeah, a condition which is unremedied has symptoms that will lead to death. Assuming HIV is actually the cause, and that's not necessarily the cause. I'll just say that. <laughs> okay? Uh, but that's another discussion. That's a complete other discussion. <laughs> but assuming it's the cause, it has, it has, you have a condition now, which you didn't choose, that will have symptoms lead to death. And if you have antiviral meds given to you for free, and you take them, But how about if you have individual meds that you refuse? What causes the death? See, we're not responsible for the condition with which we're born, born in sin. We're not responsible for that. We're not guilty for it. What we're held accountable for, according to Scripture, is refusing the free remedy of Jesus Christ. Light has come into the world, the light which lightens all men, but men have preferred darkness, and therefore condemnation comes. Condemnation doesn't come from the condition. Condemnation comes from refusing the remedy that, change, that transforms and heals the condition, Jesus Christ. So that's the big difference. And I'm going to just tell you, the, the organized systems of religion that I know in Christianity do not comprehend this. They are, because their institutions run on imperialism. Their institutions run on the hierarchy. Their institutions run on rules and rules enforcement. They are conditioning their practices that this is how order comes. You must have rules and you must enforce them. God's ways are not our ways. Ten. Yeah.
1: Don't you think, though, to people who do reject uh, God, Jesus, that it feels like punishment from God? So that's the way they would look at it? And I, as a verse, I, I was thinking of Isaiah 9. Um,
0: do feelings tell the truth?
1: 18. <laughs> no. <laughs> but okay. I'm just saying from their perspective... That's the way it would feel. It said, Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. Which I find interesting, tacked at the end of this. No one will spare his brother. Apparently, it's a form of a godlessness that uh, that where people attack each other but blame God.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you completely. This is what uh, the, uh, Jesus said. Um, well, only those who have been born again can see the kingdom of heaven. Said so that to Nicodemus. Only those who have been born again can see the kingdom of heaven. But the Bible in two places says those who've crucified him will see him coming. In the power and glory, sitting at the right hand of his Father. Even the wicked, even those who pierced him, will see him coming in his glory. So, what does that mean? The kingdom of heaven is not about power, the kingdom of heaven is about love and trust. The King Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is within you. Only those who have been born again can see the kingdom of heaven. They see him coming in might and power. Those who have been reborn see the Lamb. That was sacrificed from the foundation of the world that we can love and trust and we feel safe with him. Those who have not been reborn see someone with power and it frightens them and they run and hide and beg for the mountains to fall on them. Okay? So exactly what you're saying. They misperceive because of the lies and the lenses that they see the reality through, which they have solidified into in their character. Uh, yeah, visual seeing and, yeah, versus comprehension, yeah. Um, <clears throat> The lesson, uh, second paragraph, quoting the SDA Bible Commentary, reads, uh, In the original context, this phrase described moral obedience to the will of God. The author of Hebrews uses the phrase to show that the sacrifice of Christ fulfilled the will of God in providing an acceptable atonement, which the animal sacrifices could not provide. What do you think that means, acceptable atonement? They don't explain it. They just say it was an acceptable atonement. If you have the wrong law model, okay, you teach a form of heavenly paganism. Paganism is we come to God with a sacrifice of some kind and offer it to him to influence him so he won't hurt us in some way. Uh, we bring the sacrifices uh, of an animal uh, of, of our own firstborn and whatever we're going to have fruits if uh, we're a, a gardener or whatever. We bring something to God and say, here, I'm going to offer this to you to to influence you to bless me and not hurt me in some way. That's paganism. And what does Christianity teach? Well, we don't have anything we can offer God. So he sent his son to die and offer himself a sinless sacrifice to give a sinless human blood sacrifice to the father so the father won't harm and hurt us. That's heavenly paganism. Same problem, same dynamic. God needs something offered to him so he won't hurt us. It's contrary to anything you read in scripture. Scripture does not teach this in any way. Scripture teaches God was in the son reconciling the world to himself for God so loved the world that Jesus had to die in order to influence him to love us more no, God so loved he gave if God is for you who can be against you He if somebody gave him up how will we not along with him give us all things God is always for us always for us always for us nothing had had has ever needed to be done to God to get him to be for us ever that's paganism Jesus is the, the manifestation of God. Uh, he is the thoughts of God made it visible to us. The word of God made flesh. The character of God lived out. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So any of this other stuff, it's just completely... So what makes it acceptable? The atonement Acceptable. Because it provided or achieved what God needed done. It cured the condition. Jesus achieved in human flesh what no other human could do, revealed the truth about God because he was God also, was tempted in every way just like us, yet without sin, destroyed at the cross the infection of fear and selfishness that tempts, restored in humanity the perfect law of God, lived out functionally, operationally, and rose again in a purified humanity, redeeming, restructuring, recreating, carrying humanity to perfection. If you want to use that language, and thus he becomes the source of salvation for all. Of him. He, it was acceptable because it achieved what was necessary to save the human species. At one, minute. at one meant restore. At one minute. Acceptable at one meant because it actually achieved human humanity, the species back at one with God, the Creator. That's what was achieved. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, according to Hebrews, the fact that Jesus was appointed priest according to the order of Melchizedek implied a new covenant had been inaugurated. The old covenant had been on the basis of the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests acted as mediators between God and Israel, and the law excluded anyone else from the priesthood. The author concludes that then that a change of priesthood implies a change of the law. Uh, uh, a law of the priesthood, as well as a change of the covenant. Pardon? That's a problem. Yeah. T- well, tell me why it's a problem.
1: Well, because Jesus did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay. So he fulfills
0: the covenant. And Which covenant?
1: I've
0: just read a whole book on the covenant.
1: The covenant that God made with Israel is fulfilled in Jesus. Okay. So it's called a new covenant, but it's really still God's remedy that he's provided for from, from, us. From,
0: from. But the author of Hebrews makes this argument about the, with the change in the priesthood, there's a change in law. That's, that's, not the, that's not the lesson authors, that's in Hebrews. Hebrews makes that argument. Specifically, with the change of the priesthood in Melchizedek, there was a change in law.
2: Well, he couldn't have been a priest under the old system. Ju-
0: Jesus was not descended from Levi. He was a son of Judah. So Jesus could not be our high priest if we went by the Levitical law. That's the, the argument of... of, of but, you, but I like where you're going because you're right. You're right. But the covenant, this is where people get confused. There is really only ever really truly been one covenant. One, one, one. Yeah. Yeah. It's the covenant of grace. And it was first given to humanity, recorded in scripture, where? Genesis, Genesis 3.15. Genesis the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That is the covenant right there. God covenanted or promised to take the sin condition upon himself, become one of us, the seed of the woman, to crush the serpent's head, to destroy Satan and his power, Hebrews 2.14, and provide a way of escape for those who trust him. This is the covenant right there. Every, all this other stuff is in some way a manifestation of that covenant. Let's, 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 let's break this out some more. So, they talk in here language, New Covenant, Old Covenant. The New Covenant, the term New Covenant, it's used in Hebrews, it's used in Jeremiah, other places. It's really new to the Hebrew mind, or the Jewish mind, which had in their mind the Sinai Covenant as the covenant. This is covenant for us. Perhaps the Abrahamic Covenant, but then it was the Sinai Covenant. And so this becomes new because it changes their understanding of the covenant. But it actually historically isn't new. It's the same covenant from Genesis 3.15. So consider this quote from the book Faith I Live By. As the Bible presents two laws, two laws, one changeless and eternal the other, provisional and temporary. Two laws. One changeless and eternal. One provisional and seminary. What are these two laws? If one is changeless and eternal, what kind of law is that, functionally? That's design law. Those are the laws the creator builds reality upon. They're changeless and they're eternal. Law of love, law of liberty, law of worship, law of exertion, uh, physical health laws, laws of physics. These are changeless and eternal laws that, that the universe God created operate upon. What about provisional and temporary law, though? What kind of law is that? These are like the rules parents make for their kids. When you make the rule brush your teeth, that's temporary and provisional, but it's based on the eternal and unchanging law, of the second law of thermodynamics. If you don't put energy into a system, that system decays. That's a design law. And because they're children, you make a temporary provision. And you do this in the child's mind. You step in between them in reality, and allow yourself for a brief period of time to be viewed as an enforcer. You may have a rule for your three-year-old not to play in the street. Probably did, didn't you? If you lived on a busy street, for sure. And if you caught your three-year-old riding there, you know, trike in the street, might you inflict a punishment? And if the neighbor said, why can't you play in the street? Well, my mom said, no. And if you do, what happens? So in the child's mind... Breaking the rule of praying in the street, the punishment comes from mom. But in reality, in reality, if they play in the street and get hit by a car, where's the real punishment coming from? Breaking the laws of physics and health. This is Old Testament. God taking upon itself, stepping in between the children and reality, allowing himself to be viewed as the one who punishes them because they're babies, they're infants. Why are why are we as a church still teaching this infant formula stuff? Why don't we grow up and teach reality? This is what Hebrews 5 and 6 is calling for people. The 10 commandments? Part of the uh, are they are they the eternal changeless or are they the provisional and temporary? Provisional and temporary. They were added later based on the eternal Changeless, The expressions of the law of love codified and distilled down for the need of a fallen sinful humanity. Angels, I promise you, did not have a law that their sins will pass down three and four generations. Didn't have it. I'm betting they didn't have a law to honor their mothers and fathers. (laughs) Or not to commit adultery. And the Sabbath wasn't created until the end of creation week of human existence, but angels are already in existence, so there's no Sabbath for them. And it was made for man, not for angels. Okay? This law that we uh, so go to with our penal legal system and hold it up as the rules that we must enforce is a provisional, temporary codification of the eternal law that life is built upon. And writing the law in the heart of the new covenant, I write my law in your heart and mind, is not writing a list of ten rules. It's restoring the principles of love for God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And those principles of love mean you're honest and truthful. So the law of truth is in operation. And you also respect the autonomy and liberty of other people. And so you practice the principles of freedom. You don't coerce and compel. If you want to be dogmatic about anything that God does, one thing God will never do is take away your freedom to choose. He will never do it. Because to take away your freedom to choose destroys your ability to love. Robots can't love. Computers can't love. Love. Puppets can't love. He'll never take it. And in heaven, we will have absolute freedom in heaven. So, one changeless and eternal, the other provisional and temporary. So there are two covenants. Two covenants. One changeless in eternal, one provisional and temporary. One covenant based on eternal laws. One covenant based on design laws. One covenant operating on imposed laws. Ceremonial laws. Ritual laws. Theater laws. One covenant restoring reality, God's principles into the heart and minds of people. One covenant theatrically, educationally acting out what is supposed to happen. The covenant of grace was first made in Eden, with man in Eden. And after the fall, there was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. To all men, this covenant offered pardon and the assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. It also promised them eternal life on the condition of fidelity to God's law. Well, that's awful restrictive. Got to pick up a bunch of rules. Rules. Why is life, eternal life, on the condition of fidelity to God's law? For the same reason, temporal life is on the condition of fidelity to the law of respiration. If you want to live temporally, you have to breathe. It's a requirement. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Thus the patriarchs received hope of salvation. The same covenant, the same covenant, the covenant of grace, Genesis 3.15, was renewed to Abraham in the promise, in, this, in thy seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This promise pointed to Christ, so Abraham understood it, and he trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It was, the, it was this faith that was accounted to him to righteousness. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's law. What does that mean? the only way to save sinners think this through you're bitten by a rattlesnake the poison's working its way through your body you end up in the emergency room the emergency room doctor said what happened I got bit by a rattlesnake please save me I forgive you is that what you're seeking forgiveness oh okay but that was done by someone how about you did it to yourself I was I was despondent depressed overdosed with a bottle of medicine end up in the emergency room Doc, doc, I overdosed. Please save me. Forgiveness, I forgive you for overdosing and harming yourself. Is that what you're asking for? No, salvation, save means healing, restoration to life. That's what salvation is. The only way to save sinners is to restore the law upon which life operates into sinners, into humanity. This is the covenant agreement. God covenanted, I will send my son to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that you might become righteous. So that through him I can restore my law into the species human, the law that life exists and operates upon. And eradicate the infection, the death-causing principle out of humanity. This happened in Jesus. He was tempted and he, took, he partook of this humanity, was tempted by this humanity. You see it in Gethsemane. He had human emotions causing him anguish and temptation. Adam did not have that in Eden. But he didn't give in to those human emotions and anguish and temptation. And that is what Jesus accomplished. He perfected humanity, and yes, he becomes the source of salvation. And when we trust him, the Spirit takes the victory of Christ. We get new heart, new motives, new desires, new longings. Our love expands. Our concern for self diminishes. Yes?
2: Just before the crucifixion, Christ said, the devil is coming and there's nothing in him that attracted
0: him. To him. That's right. The Abrahamic covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ and is so-called the second or new covenant because the blood which sealed it was shed after the blood of the first covenant. Is this a legal thing? Just, to, oh yeah, I had to shed the blood in order to legally seal the document. Had a little seal, had the, and it had the Sabbath in it because the Sabbath has his name and his domain and his, you know, the whole thing. And so we had the Sabbath, and then we put the blood on that and we stamped this document somewhere. Is that, was that what I was talking about? No. What's it talking about? What law lens you hear it through? Imperial legal people hear it in that way. Some, somehow the blood price had to be paid in the legal. We don't know the mechanism. The legal documents, have, but some legal legal mechanism had to happen here in order to ratify the covenant, so God could legally pardon. Because somebody has to pay the penalty, and it has to be entered in the books and the registry of a law. This is all fraudulent. It's reality based. It's reality based. What was accomplished by Christ, by the shedding of his blood in the way he did, living sinlessly, giving his life freely, it was the remedy, the cure, the restoration of human species to perfection and righteousness. In the person of Jesus Christ, the species human was put right with God. He did this as a human. He didn't do it as a divine being. The covenant of grace is not a new truth. It existed in the mind of God from all eternity. This is why it is called an everlasting covenant. So that's the the, the first covenant. Uh, Patriarchs and prophets says the sacrificial offerings were ordained by God. Patriarchs and prophets um, 68 were ordained by God to be to man a perpetual reminder of and a penitential acknowledgement of his sin and a confession in his faith in the promised Redeemer. They were intended to impress upon the fallen race the solemn truth that it was sin that caused death. Wait, 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 wait! Doesn't God have to use power to punish you for sin? Isn't sin a penalty inflicted by the judge? No. Sin causes death. That's scripture. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. James 1. James 1. To Adam, no. if if you have this mind that can kind of put puzzle pieces together, these types of statements, you can see many little insights. A question came up a week or two ago in our class that, that this quote, actually, and I'm going to comment on it and tell you what it is, but to Adam, the offering of the first sacrifice was a most painful ceremony. His hand must be raised to take life, which only God could give. What did you just hear described here? Whose hand killed the first sacrifice, according to this author? It was Adam. Yet many legal penal adherents point to the God providing coverings and skins to Adam and Eve as God killing the first sacrifice in order to cover them. This author doesn't take that position. This author takes the position of first sacrifice. And of course, Scripture never says anything about God killing an animal to give them skins. It's all red in because you have to believe in the penal legal model. God is the executioner, and he only God connects you. So God had to kill Jesus at the cross, and we have to symbolize that by God killing that first animal and giving skins. All red in because of their penal legal distortion. Yes. Can God create skins? Of course, if He can create animals out of dirt, He can create skins, right? Have to kill the skin. But notice the next sentence. So uh, the, to Adam, the offering of the first sacrifice was. Most painful. His hand was raised to take life. First sacrifice. And then, but uh, some, but some say, um, and here's the next one. It was the first time he had ever witnessed death. Some some of some, uh, the penal legal people might argue, say, yeah, yeah, yes, that was the first sacrifice in a ceremonial way to confess sins on. God didn't have sins to confess on the animal. Uh, he was acting the role of the divine magistrate, and he was executing the animal, not confessing sins. So there, was no, there was no sacrificial ceremony, so the first sacrificial ceremony Adam killed, but God killed Jesus as a substitute to give him the skins first. No, because the next sentence says, and was, it was the first time he had witnessed death. There was no death prior to this. This is the first one, and, Adam, and Adam's hand killed the first animal. That oh. And he knew that, and he knew that had he been obedient to God, there would have been no death of man or beast. As he slew the innocent victim, he trembled at the thought that his sin must shed the blood of the spotless lamb of God. This scene gave him a deeper and more vivid sense of the greatness of his transgression, which nothing but the death of God's dear son could expiate. Expiate. What does that mean? The transgression or the sin is being expiated here. Not the anger or wrath of God, which is almost universally taught in the penal legal fraud that, that that the blood sacrifice was required to propitiate and expiate the wrath of God. No. Sin. What is sin? It's a condition of being. Adam, the human species, was now out of harmony with God. We had fear and selfishness in the being, and it was through the life, death, and victorious uh, achievements of Christ that that condition was expiated, and righteousness was restored. I'm going to jump up to the next quote, Prophets and Kings. In patriarchal times, the sacrifice, sacrifice, because, because God gave this system to teach, to to teach what sin does. To to bring us back to an appreciation for God who would sacrifice himself for us. But Satan perverted it. He twisted it. How? Listen to this. In patriarchal times, the sacrificial offering connected with the divine worship constituted a perpetual reminder of the coming of the Savior. And thus was uh, it was with the entire ritual of the sanctuary service throughout Israel's history. From the day the Lord declared the serpent in Eden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Satan has known that he could never hold absolute sway over the inhabitants of the world. When Adam and his sons began offering cer- cer- sacrificial, ceremonial sacrifices, what kind of sacrifices? Ceremonial. Not. They were No sacrifice of any animal in the Old Testament had any salvation benefit. They were all ceremonial. They were all object lessons. They were all teaching tools. No salvation came. This is, I don't know if you know, but in much of Protestant Christianity, uh, it is taught that those animals expiated sin and provide forgiveness until Jesus came. No, they didn't. They had no bearing. You didn't have to participate in animal sacrifice in Old Testament to be saved. We can see examples of that. Naaman, the Shunammite woman who hit Elijah, Nebuchadnezzar there are other people outside of Israel, only if you're in Israel, only if you're part of the acting troupe and in the theatrical performance where you require to follow the script. that's it. And if you came in, Rahab, Ruth, then you followed the script. Hey, we, we joined the, we joined the acting team. Yes.:
1: I used to think that every sin that they committed. That they had to sacrifice
0: an animal for every sin. I, th- I think many people uh, would would say that's true. Many people teach that that was true. That was part of their system. Um, A lot of animals. Yes, it was. Um, from the day the Lord declared the. Sur- okay, I read that. Um, ordained by, uh, okay, so Adam and his sons began to offer ceremonial sacrifices ordained by God as a type of the coming redeemer. Satan discerned in the uh, symbol of the communion between earth and heaven. During the long centuries that have followed, it has been his constant effort to intercept this communion. Untiringly, he sought to misrepresent God and to misrepresent the rites pointing to the savior and with great majority of the members of the human family, he has been successful. In other words, these old Testament sacrifices have been seen through the lens that Satan wants people to see them through. Continuing on. While God has desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift, which reconciles them to him. Where's the change being made? In us, that's the the gift. I send the gift that fixes you, so we can be together again. That's what it's supposed to teach. Continuing on, the arch enemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as one who delights in their destruction. Oh, I'm mad! You broke my rules. I'm going to have to kill you. And so, so instead, if that's oh, God's going to die he's going to destroy us. Oh my, oh my. Then what are these sacrifices for? Look, notice what so this, this author says. Thus the sacrifices and ordinances divine of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. That's exactly what is taught in our church, in our seminaries, that God's angry, he's wrathful, he's so holy, he's offended, Jesus had to die to present his blood to the Father to propitiate his wrath. I will tell you, um, I have had multiple discussions with theological professors in our institution who adhere strictly to that way of teaching. prophets Prophets and Kings, page 685. So um, Monday's lesson, uh, I'm gonna. We started late, so I'm gonna just keep going for a few minutes and hit some high points. Okay. The second paragraph says the issue with the old covenant was that the people broke it. The people broke it. The people broke it. What is a covenant? An agreement. What did the people do that broke the agreement or contract or covenant with God? What did they do? I'm going to offer a new idea here. Because most of the time it says, well, they they, they sinned, right? Immediately, they they, they sinned. They they broke broke the covenant by sinning. I'm going to suggest that's actually not the deal. I'm going to suggest they broke the covenant by agreeing to take responsibility in the covenant for something that was not theirs to take responsibility for. They took responsibility to achieve an outcome that was never theirs to achieve. That's what they broke.
2: So the statement, all that the Lord has said we will do?
0: All the Lord has said we will do. We will do all that the Lord has said. It's, so, whose responsibility in the covenant... Is it to overcome sin? God. Whose responsibility is to live a sinless human life? Jesus. Okay. Whose responsibility is to crush the serpent's head, destroying his power of death? The seed of, of the woman. Jesus. Whose responsibility is it to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light? To Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Mhm. Whose responsibility is it to reveal the truth about God perfectly? jesus yeah whose responsibility is it to destroy the devil's work first john 3 8 that's where that text is by the way it's jesus whose responsibility is to be the connecting link that links sinful humanity back to god jesus whose responsibility is it to reconcile all things whether in heaven and earth at the cross that's colossians chapter one jesus Whose responsibility is to write God's law fully, completely, and perfectly into the living temple of the human heart and mind? Jesus did that. As a human being, he restored the living law of God into the the species human in his own humanity that he lived out. Whose responsibility is to then heal and restore all who trust God? Jesus, through then the work of the Holy Spirit. Exactly right. What was the responsibility of the humans to all this, this covenant, this agreement? God took on himself all of this responsibility, and the human responsibility in the covenant is? Obey and accept. There's an old song Trust and, obey. Trust and obey. That's it. It's like going to your doctor. Trust your doctor and follow his treatment plan. That's it. That's our job. Trust him and follow. Trust, obey is not rule keeping. If, if if your doctor gives you some you know exercises to do to recover from an injury, this isn't rule-keeping. I've got to do this or I'll get in trouble with the doctor. That's not how it works. This is how the healing takes place. So Israel, I think, broke the covenant from the beginning by taking responsibility for stuff that was never theirs. We'll do it. All the Lord says, we'll do. We'll fix it. We'll fix it. How'd that work out? (laughs) New Year's resolution. New Year's resolution. There you go.
2: Tim, it's sort of a universal statement that people make that rank has its privileges. So once they felt that God had bestowed upon them the rank of this priesthood, I think... They ran. They ran with that authority, just like it has sort of it has evolved into uh, Christianity through what Paul refers to as the royal priesthood. But the big problem here is that we don't have we don't have rank like the world has rank.
0: Well, those who want to be first will be last. And in God's kingdom, the more that, that you give, uh, the more shall be given unto you. And so the more authority, responsibility, education, privilege God gives you, you have a greater responsibility to help those who don't have it. That's how God's kingdom works. That's why he who who surrendered himself all the way to the cross is exalted all the way to the highest. So, and that's why when we become like him, we share his throne, when we become like him in service to others, then we are uplifted and share his throne, and one day perhaps Perhaps, speculation, uh, as we share his throne, uh, some of us from planet Earth get to rule galaxies and get to rule planets by living the principles of love and how we lead those planets and, and galaxies in and, and this immense universe. We are the pinnacle of the creation. We were created in his image to be co-partners with him. That's why Satan hated it. And we have an experience now of that self-sacrificial love that the rest of the universe doesn't fully appreciate.
2: This whole thing has been a struggle over the authority over human beings, and over what some people believe as, as uh, you know, God's creation or his, or his laws.
0: So, Jesus fulfilled God's purpose in both saving humanity from sin, but in also having humanity, humanity the species, fulfill God's original intention for the creation before sin. God's intention before sin was for the human being to be a friend of God. Jesus fulfilled that. He is a co-partner with God. He sits and shares God's throne now uh, to be the pinnacle of creation. Human beings were given authority of dominion and procreation. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment. Some people wonder, well, okay, wait a second now. Jesus didn't procreate. There's a reason for that. Jesus created... Jesus was remember the, the God who had created Adam and Eve. Those are his children. We're his children. We're already his children, number one. But there was a reason Jesus didn't go through the human experience of marriage and have children. Any thoughts? You want to hear my thoughts? When God creates, does he create sinners? Or does he only create sinless perfection when he creates? If Jesus would have had a wife and had children, and procreated would they have been sinless perfection or sinners, sinners. Nope. one drop of sin makes you sinner. <laughs> so I, I, there was no sinless woman he would have had sinful children he, he never cre- God never creates sin or sinners this is why Jesus didn't marry and have children there was no possible way for him on earth in a sinful humanity as a human living as a human to have sinless babies
2: so you have a problem with the Immaculate Conception
0: then? Uh, there is no such thing as the, uh, in the in the doctrinal sense of that word. Mary was a virgin and gave birth, but but Jesus was born as a unique being. We don't have time to go into that right now. Okay. Um. Well, and then there were several other things in the lesson we just won't have time to get to. So we're gonna take we're gonna stop. So we can, there's a lot of questions today. So we're gonna go into the question answers. Yes.
2: One point. The lesson was about being a mediator. We have a mediator facing the wrong direction.
0: Yes. Yes, I would like to have gotten into the mediator stuff because actually they made a couple of interesting and I thought uh, appropriate points as well. But mediation, uh, in in the traditional sense, somebody is a go between. Which, where, where does the, where does the problem of sin occur? In God or in people? In people. Then where does the action have to occur to to reconcile the, the difference? In God or in people? So all of Jesus' mediations are always in people, not in God. So that's exactly right gracious father in heaven we thank you so much for your love for the truth that you revealed through scripture through jesus thank you for all that you've done and are still doing we ask that you will pour your spirit out and fix the brokenness in us enlighten our minds connect the various puzzle pieces together help us to eliminate the distortions and misunderstandings and come to ever clearer understanding of your kingdom make us effective at this time in history to share this message that pull people out of this fake false legal system that has got so many trapped so they can embrace the the power of, of your love, recreating them in righteousness. We pray in your holy name. Amen.